Welcome to The Mushroom's Apprentice. I am your host, Shona Holm, and this is episode three. We are in the first hour, and I have a very special guest today, and this is Dr. Patrick McManaway. Dr. Patrick McManaway is a third-generation Scottish healer, dowser, and land whisperer with a degree in medicine. He is the past president of the British Society of Dowsers, and his work is internationally recognized. He spends half the year in the U.S. and half in the U.K. and Australia working with farmers and landowners to correct imbalances in the landscape. He is also a brilliant speaker and an amazing teacher. His website is patrickmcmanaway.com, and that's M-A-C-M-A-N-A-W-A-Y. And on his website, you can listen to prior interviews, and he has amazing uh, videotaped classes that I have taken, and, and they are so incredibly informative. I am very honored to say that Patrick is a friend of mine, and I have brought a number of clients to him when I lived in Vermont. And and so welcome, Patrick, to my little podcast. Shana, absolute pleasure to get to spend some time with you here, and um, yeah, share whatever we can with your audience. Um, I, let me just quick interject, first thing to say, um, people should hear me like you as a pilgrim and a searcher and a practitioner um, rather than in any way as a guru or teacher. Um, And I'm happy to share as uh, I can and um, coach and and, and mentor, but I shouldn't be be put on any kind of pedestal here uh, in terms of guru or teacher. uh, very much as 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 you are, um, just honestly exploring and uh, joining up thoughts as we go. I think. Well, thank you for that clarification, Patrick. And this is what I love so much about you: is your humility, and it's uh, it's really heartening. Well. Let's talk about background first. And you grew up with a mother and father who themselves were gifted healers and uh, you had a very busy household. So if you could just share some of that with the listeners, it's, it's really quite wondrous. Yes, um, it, was just, it was just how life was growing up. And now in retrospect, I see it as, as being quite uh, unique and extraordinary in its own ways. Um, my parents set up a healing and teaching center for spiritual healing, mediumship, and related um, arts and understandings in 1959 in rural Scotland. The background to that, my father, whose mum was a medium in London in the 1920s and 30s, uh, he literally discovered a gift of healing whilst fighting a rearguard action as a 19-year-old soldier at Dunkirk and um, wounded comrades with no medical support or supplies and put his hands on um, on injuries and uh, had his mind blown by getting people out of pain and stopping bleeding and keeping them alive when otherwise they probably should have died. 
Um, and that rather changed his life, as you can imagine. And then he uh, stayed in the military for another 20 years. Uh, but during that time, extended his training in psychic practices, mediumship, uh, uh, healing. The context of the day was um, uh, we were under um, um, inquisitional laws in the UK from about 900 AD. And then when Britain separated from the Catholic Church with Henry VIII in the mid-1500s, they immediately established witchcraft laws to uh, continue regulation on um, non-ordained practice of healing and divination. And that stayed in place until the early 1950s, um, when the witchcraft laws were finally replaced by the Fraudulent Mediums Act. The fraud, and, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, the Fraudulent Mediums Act? What, what yes, exactly this, was that? Well, this was the first time, I guess, in uh, whatever that was, over a thousand years, where um, healers, mediums, uh, practitioners of divination could be legal uh, and practice above ground, uh, just as tradespeople, the same as, you know, plumbers and uh, mechanics and electricians. So there's a context of uh, esotericism having been either underground in the UK for over a thousand years until the early 1950s or else um, maintained in a variety of closed societies, um, whether we call them secret societies or simply public societies that kept esoteric secrets, various of them. So a bit of a different history in, in the UK than Europe aware of here in uh, in the US where um, mediumship was flourishing uh, in the late 1800s and early 1900s and summer camps um, along Lake Champlain actually um, uh, so um, so context then um, my mum had been identified as healer girl early in her childhood and was the girl you brought your sick animal or your headache or your sore shoulder to. And she somehow put her hands on and miracle things away. So um, they got together in the 50s at, at the time that things were beginning to open up and they established really the first professional above ground <laughs> healing centre in the UK at the time. And they were very grassroots and had to homestead. Uh, they lived in one camper van and their healing center was in a second parallel camper van and dad worked as he commanded a regiment in the army, but he was down to working as second pigman for the local estate to keep his his healing habit going because it, it simply wasn't in culture for people to pay for that stuff at the time. So they were very creative and innovative and committed to their their path and their journey and they created this microcosm of uh, holistic um, healing, nutritional health, um, complementary medicines uh, very early on and um, they managed to create a conferencing centre on site converting a pig barn that would accommodate up to 100 people 
and uh, there were up to eight or ten full-time residential students at a time, all of them trading time in the garden, so a huge amount of food production, um, and uh, very sort of of its day community community spirit focused on uh, developing intuitive gifts, healing and mediumship. And because it was early in the day, we had literally in and out visiting gurus and lamas. Uh, Chogyam Trumper was a family friend, um, but Native Americans and various people now iconic uh, in the US sort of consciousness movement uh, were through and they would play backgammon and ride horses with us. <laughs> and now I sort of look at their their videos and podcasts and hear stories about people who uh, trained with them variously. So it was a very rich upbringing, uh, community-spirited. Um, everything was doused for when the bread was ready to come out of the oven, um, which which way to go if there were various routes on a journey, what time to leave, I don't know. Um, there were pendulums on all all side tables and um, sort of metaphysical chat going on uh, just because that was the buzz. So that all seemed normal to me, Shona, and it's been a bit of a bit of a reality shock to discover that that's not everybody else's reality. No, that would be an understatement. (laughs) Well, so when did you realize that you also had this, this gift for healing? And Um, I think it was always assumed that anybody who wanted to could do it. And um, perhaps uh, a reflection of my lack of initiative and creativity. I just sort of thought that was cool and learned from my parents and joined the family business. So it's a bit like a baker or a farmer or a, a somebody just, uh, yeah, learning on the job and joining in because it seemed like good livelihood and um, the niche that I uh, ended up in working with landscape Um at the time uh, that I was, you know, looking to choose a particular focus for myself, um, geopathic stress and landscape work was very um, underknown. Um, complementary holistic medicines had gotten very well established in many different forms and organizations and trainings promoting, but the landscape piece seemed very under underobserved. Um, and uh, I'd figured out early on that I, uh, particularly during my time in, in medicine, that I, I did not want a, an indoor job ever again in my life. Um, very randomly, Shonan, I may have shared this with, with you, but um, my parents got, got my astrology chart done, you know, timed me out of birth. Uh, home delivery to vegetarian yoga teaching mother timed out for astrological purposes. (laughs) Anyway, I found this thing when I was about 14, digging through mum's desk, looking for birth certificate. And um, uh, at the end of the astrological analysis, it says, 
I can't tell whether this child will become a doctor or a farmer. And um, it sort of uh, subsequently echoes in my mind of having followed my path into uh, ending up being um, in the space that I'm in, working healing hurts and optimizing health in um, in landscapes, large and small. So. That's the mark of a brilliant astrologist. <laughs> truly, truly. That, that is amazing. Well, let's talk about that because you, you douse. And so if you could speak to what is dowsing and also go into the history of this, because of course, people used to douse with branches and now they have all kinds of different ways to do that. Yes. So, um, I think, Shanna, uh, sort of three steps back, because uh, that's a really critical question. Um, dowsing shows up at one extreme end of a spectrum sliding scale of different so-called divinatory processes. And uh, historically, divination simply means drawing information from unseen or intangible realms. Um and so that may be drawing information from tangible but unseen realms. Think of dowsers looking for water or gold or or silver or tin or whatever they're after. So they're they're using their uh, divinatory art to find a very tangible thing that's imperceptible directly to them because of its location. Or equally, we can use our uh, dowsing to find uh, things that are outside of our perceptual range. So most of our five senses actually are incredibly limited um, and designed to prevent data overwhelm <laughs> to a rather small system. Um, so we know, you know, our auditory range is limited. Bats and dogs hear frequencies above what we can. Um, uh, infrasound for us, you know, communication between marine mammals um, our visual spectrum, what we perceive as light, is a wafer-thin mint uh, of a vast electromagnetic spectrum, most of which we can't see. There's no difference between sunlight and the microwave that's running our computers as we speak, or even, in fact, of our thoughts and feelings uh, are all waves in, in that same spectrum. So when you actually look at our tangible uh, senses, although they give a rich and full life experience, they're actually excluding 99.9999999% of, you know, the p potentially perceptible uh, stuff that they're perceiving. So, um, so most of our surroundings are, in fact, uh, energetically potent and rich in information and pattern, um, uh, but imperceptible to our five tangible senses. So divination really is any means by which we access information beyond our five tangibles. And so at one end of the spectrum, we surrender our consciousness entirely to an external source um, and allow ourselves to really properly channel. So think Edgar Casey and full trans mediumship. Um, and out of interest, just 
winding back. I think in 1952, they had a demonstration of full trans mediumship in the House of Commons in the UK in order to legitimize and authenticate um, the value of mediumship. So that was what they were doing back in the 20s and 30s and 40s. It's not very popular anymore. It requires a lot of training and discipline and a very solid, secure group of helpers surrounding. If you're really going to surrender your consciousness, you need people around you to act as bears and sheepdogs and hold safe space and bring you home, etc. So, but in from there, then we've got various astral projections, uh, shamanic journeying, uh, remote viewing, where we move our consciousness outside of our 3D space. Um, so that's sort of up at the end of the uh, scale in terms of relationship between consciousness and body. And then in the mid-range, um, there are processes where we use some kind of medium um, to exchange information through, whether that's the Ching or tarot cards or uh, runes or reading um, animal patterns or clouds or scrying in water or fire. Um, uh, we've got some kind of ask a question and get shown a pattern and interpret the pattern. And then down at the other end of the scale, uh, we're into binary process. Um, so it's the most limited, uh, but it's also the most concrete and specific. So at, at that end of the scale, you're, you're getting either a yes or a no to some expressed uh, question. And whether we do that with muscle testing and kinesiology, uh, or whether we use pendulum or some other process. Um, uh, so it's a space in which we get to ask closed questions. All of the other divinatory processes, you can ask an open question and then you're left, frankly, to interpret the dream or the answer um, uh, or the journey. Uh, with a dowsing process, you get a very concrete yes or no. What that means is it's entirely limited to how good a question you asked and whether the answer to that question is fully and completely answered by yes and no. So it tends to get used a lot in um, location of things. Uh, where's the pipe that's leaking? Where's the power line I can't find? Where's the gold? Where's the water? Um, where's the missing thing? Um and then it gets used often. Um, when I'm working with landscape, I'm probably 95% open, intuitive, uh, telepathic, uh, perceptual. But often during that and at the end of a process, I want to be able to ask some solid questions about, is there a curse here? Is there a ghost here? Is there a portal here? Are the boundaries good? Is anybody in stress? Do I need to give attention to elementals or dragons or um, landscape residue? So it's it's very helpful to have uh, something that's concrete uh, that allows me to work down a list. Uh, one doesn't need the physical tool. The physical tool helps you to anchor into the physical realm uh, is really its value and purpose. Whether it's a rod or a pendulum, it gives you something literally to look at. <laughs> and so it brings you into an observational 
but three-dimensional space, which is exactly where you want to be. You want to be in observational space to do any kind of divination. Um, and, um, yeah, the dowsing tools literally give you something to focus on uh, so that your mind doesn't sort of spread laterally but stays um, focused and on point. Okay. That's and- my best go on dowsing. <laughs> Well, and dowsing is, it's very old, right? I mean, it was used by the ancients, was it not? The dowsing, um, you know, I, didn't I they think use... we used to get all of our information from divination. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 one, one thing that's slightly been lost for our culture, but it was very much in our culture, uh, remembering that, yeah, the European culture is basically a magical culture um in essence uh whether celtic or or norse or 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 anglo or um eurasian hindu um oldest written um um tracts on divinity so um uh historically divination was always we didn't have google we didn't have libraries if you wanted to know anything that you didn't know you asked your granny who was dead and therefore knew better than you did and um so our informational resources are radically changed and um now but divination would have been our primary survival informational resource um, for most of our, our, our history. And so by whatever art, um, was required on the day, um, um, Moses brings forth water from the rock with a rod. I'm not sure whether that was divination or manifestation because I've seen water come up out of the ground at request also. Um, but we've got records of dowsing uh, certainly for a uh, thousand or fifteen hundred years, and I'm 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 thinking simply forever. Um, I'm sure there's there's Egyptian hieroglyphs of of that stuff being used. It's it's simply been a human practice um, of usefulness. Um, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica. Sorry, of I think nineteen oh eight. Uh, declares the best dowsers to be unlettered men. And uh, I think there's a lot in that. Um, they needed them for water dowsers. That was a that was a fundamental agricultural practice. So they couldn't ban water dowsing. They banned witchcraft and dowsing for herbalism. Um, but it was apparently safe to have unlettered men using dowsing rods. They didn't want sophisticated people and they didn't, didn't want girls getting hold of such a powerful tool. So, but even in the Encyclopedia Britannica, it's, you know, it's, it's listed as a profession. Um, so it's, it's Elizabeth the first brings master dowsers from Germany, uh, into Britain, um, specifically because she's expanding her naval fleet and needs uh, tin uh, for combining with copper to make bronze uh, for the um, for the cannonry on the ships and other parts. So that's another, there's many historical records, but yeah, it's on record that Elizabeth I gets 
the best houses in Europe, apparently, at the time were the Germans. So she gets a bunch of them over because she's got to take care of uh, <laughs> expanding her naval ships and she needs minerals to do it. <laughs> they didn't have geophys, they only had dowsers. That was the way you found stuff. That's awesome. That's That's fantastic. Really, at the end of the day, nature speaks to us. And, and our ancestors knew that. It's really just in the 20th century, we've all been immersed into a very superficial mindset at the end of the day and very mechanical, of course, right? Because uh, nature is, is available. And I've experienced that not just with my mushroom journeys, but anyone sort of walking through the woods. And often, you know, you would take a walk to just kind of get a load off and 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 something would shift in you just by being out in nature, never mind even sort of receiving actual messages, but there'd be a kind of frequency, right, that you would get back home and you would just feel better. And, and of course, we are nature. Could you talk about the landscape itself, Patrick? You uh, mentioned elementals and dragons, and so we know there are lines of magnetic energy in the landscape, what would you say, what could you say about that? Um, really the most golden question of all. Um, uh, let me just prelude by saying, um, in, in my observation estimation, and again, uh, as per previous disclaimer, um, if I'm wrong, I apologize. I'm not claiming to be right. I'm just sharing as far as my observations have got me. Um, but it seems to me that uh, there's lots of things to be worried about um, uh, in our culture and our relationship with landscape. Um, I think there's only two problems, Shanna, um, and they're cultural paradigm problems. But I think if we fix them, then everything else, frankly, takes care of itself. And... Um, I come to this observation by looking at the difference of paradigm between previous cultures, including our own. We want to remember uh, Europe had six and a half thousand years of sustainable agriculture. Um, and it's only since the uh, introduction of uh, chemistry and industrial agriculture since the 1950s that we've, we've, run now uh, 80 years of ecocide, but we had this all down. Um, we managed to sustain ourselves in Europe sustainably for and in Asia for longer. Um, thousands and thousands of years of uh, practices of land management. And, um, and so this is in our genes, this is in our history, this is in our folkloric awareness of uh, how to relate um, sustainably. Um, so either looking at indigenous cultures untouched by Western processes, or frankly, looking at our Western culture before um, seduced uh, by chemistry and uh, industrialization, uh, I, I see two things, uh, one of which is a relationship with time. And so 
sustainable cultural paradigm has a circular relationship with time. Um, and unsustainable uh, cultural relationship has a linear relationship with time. And in a circular relationship, we know that we're coming back here again tomorrow or after the next breath or next year. It's always going to be Thanksgiving. Um, people are surprised when Christmas approaches uh, and are unprepared, myself included. But it happens every year uh, and it's kind of predictable. And so when one understands time and life as being a series of repeated cycles, the art is to get better at being present at each point in that cycle. Um, there's no way out and there's no way off. There's only here and now in a cycling process. So uh, I'm sure you remember a lovely movie called Groundhog Day uh, <laughs> with Bill Murray, but it's, it's that, that cyclical time. And so he ultimately in the movie, you know, has the best day and gets the girl that he has hoped to. Um, when we're on linear time, we think that further ahead is more and better and we'll either be sexier or richer or more powerful or more wise or more influential or uh, I don't know, but it's, it's out there and it's on further and we don't think we're ever coming back to where we are now because our mind is set in a straight line that goes out and away rather than re-coming back here again. So that changes our entire relationship with place, uh, whether it's something that we're living with and enhancing or whether we're something that's uh, a temporary asset and resource for a journey that uh, is actually uh, not related to location. I'd also say in, in, in economic terms, especially, um, our economy has been placed onto a linear time scale. And so we measure our health based on growth. Um, and if growth slows down, we consider the economy unhealthy. And if growth speeds up, we think that's a good thing. And obviously, in a biological sense, uh, with a medical training, uh, we've got a word for that, uh, something that continues to grow exponentially without a sustainable or renewing relationship to the system. Um you know, we, we, we call that cancer, that's its nature. Um, and so arguably, uh, then we literally have a cancerous relationship with our economy. Um, but that's only one example of our relationship with things around us. So circular versus linear time. Um, I'd offer that uh, as a wise thought, if, if wisdom that is for reflection. And then the other thing, which is what you actually asked me about, um, is that uh, in a sustainable paradigm, we understand that landscape is animate and intelligent and interactive and capable of organizing itself. And beyond that is capable of uh, adapting and changing its organization in order to respond to our interaction, communications and requests, uh, literally, uh, in terms of yields and fruit trees coming into fruit at convenient times and um, wells being full and water being pure. And um, this was always our understanding. And um, 
in the Celtic tradition of kingship, which, like the Native American tradition, in fact, also was not necessarily inherited, but was elected. Uh, so the wise women choose the next Celtic king and can depose him at any time of their choosing. So he's not a person, especially with executive authority, he's actually being put up as ambassador to speak not only to the gods, but to the nature spirits. And so in Scotland, Macbeth and his forebears were up on the top of the mountain called Shehalion. Uh, the she are the big high fairy folk of Scotland, landscape angels, divas, and the queen of she is about 40 feet high, apparently, and luminous and a bit intimidating. Um, so her hangout is this central sacred mountain, uh, almost perfectly pyramidal and topped with quartz in Perthshire, Shehalion, the hall of the fairy queen. So Macbeth and previous would have to be up there, certainly on the cross-quarter days, maybe the uh, solstices and equinoxes also, um, in fast, I'm sure with mushrooms. Um, in, in the UK, we have fly agaric and uh, psilocybin both, uh, where they're stock in trade. Uh, other herbs and plants, of course, also a whole library of... Um, uh, but often and typically the psilocybin used for landscape uh, divic connections and the um, fly garrick used for upper world um, angelic and deific uh, connections. Um, so, but his job was to communicate with this overarching uh, intelligence of landscape and um, bring back to the tribe kind of like Moses coming down from the mountain. I think that was, you know, what those guys did every year was um, how much to take, how many animals could be taken, which fields should be planted, what time to plant, um, just all the guidance of the farmer's almanac and what was going to look sustainable for the, for the tribe. So they were agriculturalists, but they were still retaining very much that... Um, uh, living by the grace of the elementals and nature spirits and understanding deeply that uh, their survival was, was based on clear understanding, communication and cooperation um, with, uh, with the hand that was feeding them. <laughs> well, you, you travel and, and assist on large tracts of land farms where there is geopathic stress for, for a host of reasons. What is your process with that? So, um, landscape, um, has its own intelligence and its own vibrational spirit energy. And, um, that consists of um, its geology, um, the patterning of water, um, the patterning of um, the earth meridians that run through it, large or small, um, its topography, uh, its climate, etc. So, so there's an intrinsic spirit of place that's around for hundreds of millions of years and gets to see dinosaurs and glaciers and meteor strikes and 
people showing up and growing asparagus. So there's there's a fundamental and underlying sort of Eden-like state, as it were, or a raw state or a virginal state of landscape. And then it becomes obviously um, habitat for nature spirits of every kind, the spirits of all the plants and animals and mycorrhiza um, and birds and insects, and also to us as people. And as time goes by, um, and at any point in time, the sort of spirit of place um, is a rich mix of, you know, the underlying elemental and then the currently uh, present nature spirits, divas um, of, of, of earth and uh, water and air and fire and, and, and all the plants and so forth. So, um, and then humans lay down footprints in the sand with their intentions and their experiences and the residues of their thoughts and feelings. And that adds a layer of, of patterning also, uh, including literally how they're related to the landscape, what, what the parameters of that relationship was. So in looking at landscape, uh, one one wants to sort of perceive it perceive it in its natural state, and then uh, first identify any trauma that it's carrying, which is generally human induced in some way, uh, either an interruption in in chi flow or disturbance in the elementals by a physical trauma, whether that's quarrying or mining or road building, um, or an emotional. Uh, trauma that's created a lot of residue, such as a battlefield or a massacre or a rape or a suicide or a murder, etc. Um, and all places tend to carry memory of some kind, good, bad and indifferent. So first order of business looking at landscape is sort of perceive its natural state and um, uh, heal, clean up, address um any hurts that it's carrying, ghosts, curses, uh, identity, uh, disorientation, boundary disorientation, whether it's supposed to be a forest or whether it's supposed to be a farm or whether it's supposed to be a supermarket or a, um, a home or industrial complex. So just engaging with the elementals to, to secure that consecration identity of relationship and then sort of the fun begins from there, uh, where once that's all established and there isn't a hangover or a disability or a dysfunction and everybody's clear about who's there and what they're up to, then, then you sort of get the creative uh, enhancements just flowering and flourishing from there, whether that's in a family or a business or a farm. Um, yeah. Well, how... How do you receive the information in the first place? Obviously, you are highly sensitive and intuitive. But do you, is it, does it involve sort of shifting states of consciousness? I know, obviously, you don't work, you don't need to work with mushrooms or any such thing. But, but how, how do you even go about sort of opening to receive that information from the landscape? Um. Um, 
I think patience and practice and pattern recognition probably, Shona. Um, we know what it feels like when we're relaxed and comfortable in a space. We recognize our body responding to the space by feeling relaxed. If we're in a very stressed space, we tend to get a tight gut. We tend to feel restless. We tend to feel like we're pulling our boundaries in. Our mind goes onto alert. Um, that's, that's telling us that there's something ill at ease in the space that we don't feel comfortable with. Um, um, and so, um, you know, all the, all the different arts, the clairsentience of how does it feel here? Um, you know, clairvoyance, whatever, what images am I being presented by the place? Am I being shown, um, something in my mind that wants attention? Um, uh, obviously listening to, to clients conversation because people who live there will knowingly or unknowingly tell you everything that's up, whether they've got language for it or not it always feels this way or we always react to it this way. So, um, I think, uh, yeah, clairsentience, the feelings, clairvoyance, the images, clairaudience, sometimes the place will sort of speak into your mind, claircognizance, um, just a knowing of by putting yourself there and inquiring with one's mind, just the information comes. Certainly dowsing is very helpful, uh, particularly in situations where the atmosphere is, frankly, too intense to want to merge with it uh, in one's mind or body to any degree or, or, or even at all. So the dowsing allows you to kind of be at arm's length. Um, use of spirit guides, companion angels, other helpers, uh, whether angelic or divic, as um, helpers, ambassadors, ask, ask a healthy person who understands it rather than asking the unhealthy person who doesn't. So a lot of the work is that way, uh, just sort of working with a, uh, a well-established team of, of generic and also local um, angelic and, and devic land managers, asking them what's needed, and then just proceeding accordingly and using one's mind as a bridge and can sort of work as air traffic control and connector and coordinator rather than having to fly the plane or, you know, drive the snowplow yourself. Um, you can be in the town clerk's office and make sure that all the snowplows went out in the morning rather than having to get in and drive them. Uh, that may sound lazy, but uh, generally the divas and angels can do a better job than I can imagine, literally, and just uh, by utilising the facility of human free will and reflective observation... Um, we can facilitate a, a rebalancing and healing in the system. Um, so, but often it's our witness observation request um, and that anything else that's expressed. You know, sometimes we need to ask, frankly, forgiveness or, you know, rewrite a script or... Um, um, but mostly... Um, Mostly the elementals don't carry human moral judgment. They're just putting energy into whatever pattern they perceive to put energy into. And whether it's a dinosaur or an asparagus, they're not really that bothered. Um, 
so it's mostly just uh, uh, yeah communication connection okay do you do you give offerings at all when, when you do this work um i uh, at this point in my practice i don't generally engage in physical ritual or offering mm-hmm. it seems it seems that the exchange really is is one of love mm-hmm. um and human attention and um and the mutual gift of of communication is really um the offerings i think uh are optional it's it's nice to go around to the neighbors with a pie uh it's also fine to you know just go around and have a chat and share a glass of wine um or a coffee whatever i think whatever feels personal and simple and authentic in uh acknowledging and respecting but um i i think what they really want and need is 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 human love and and communication rather than crystals or tobacco um but i don't want to i don't want to sound cynical about that in any way um i think uh what we're looking for is a a sense of um respect and uh honoring in relationship but i i think it's really happening in our mind Yes, I I agree. Now, I'm so happy you spoke to that word love and I knew you would. You have I heard you say once that human love was like universal rocket fuel. <laughs> I think so. Uh-huh. So, let's hear more about that. Um Well, I've come to this conclusion um uh quite a bit by looking at sacred geometry uh the mathematics and wave properties of the golden ratio understanding that golden ratio and coherence are uh are sort of uh mathematical signature of of unconditional love simple love pure love uh and um theory and observation relating to that but uh it does seem to me uh and justified you know scientifically as well as observationally um unattached love which is kind of an oxymoron uh, to say unattached uh is defining it in relationship to attachment so whatever word we use for that pure love simple love uh divine love uh unconditional love again is is sort of back into the the double negative but that thing whatever that is how have you language it it seems to uh energize every system um it seems to make things safe feel safe and allow them to feel acknowledged and express their true inner beauty and nature to optimum um so it's sort of a way of creating consensus and safety and harmony um i think i think in my mind a blessing is uh an offering of pure love simple love unconditional love once you've given that it establishes obviously a rapport and uh with that rapport then you can ask for specific things you know if you're talking to the garden 
the garden uh, divas, you know, sort of start with acknowledgement and love and gratitude and, and just pure, you know, sharing of mutual, you know, divine love. And then you can have a conversation about where to plant the tomatoes or whether you should be putting compost or, you know, how deep to dig in the potatoes, etc. Um So a blessing of just sending pure love does its own thing. And I found in the most extreme circumstances, not only is it the only thing, but also the most useful thing you can possibly do. Um, When all else fails, you know, simply (laughs) universal pure love and grace. Um, So it seems to me to be rocket fuel for... uh, every system and maybe our ultimate human superpower. Um, uh, I think our, our human purpose again, simply is to learn to love simply and to learn to use our free will wisely. Uh, I haven't seen any other projects or any projects that don't include those things in terms of what to do with the human mind and heart. Well, while we're in a body Could you speak to some of the experiments done on plants using, and seeds as well, using love and intention? Yes. So, uh, again, just sort of discerning between simple love and intention. Um, but there's this very classic, easy, and all listeners, please try it at home. Um, two trays of seeds on the kitchen table and um, uh, germinate them uh, with identical amounts of, of water and, you know, equal sunlight and temperature and just bless the socks off all of the water and the seeds themselves uh, in one tray. And, um, I can't do this anymore, Shannon. It's, it just seems rude, uh, and abusive, but you, you kind of just water and then ignore the other ones. So, um, uh, observationally, um, uh, seed experiments, stored food, rice in a jar, uh, best outcome is when you love it. Uh, next best outcome is when you hate it. Worst outcome is when you give it no attention at all. Mm-hmm. Really interesting mm-hmm. understanding of behavioral dynamics. Um, neglect is experienced as worse than, um, than negative attention. So you kind of just want to ignore the seeds on the other side of the table. Um, give them love. Uh, not give them love, give them water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, typically... Yeah, after about 30, 10 days, you get a 30% difference in germination rate, um, seed mass. Um, it's, it's very quickly apparent. And then uh, once you've done that, then the next step is everybody in the family um, gets their own tray. And um, <laughs> who, can, <laughs> who can enchant their seeds the best? uh is um i don't know is is quite a fun way to go so that's an easy one 
um, various results on farm um, two years in a row uh, on one farm in Scotland. The agronomist showed up and said, you've got the best field of carrots in central Scotland. Uh, as you can imagine, the next words out of his mouth was, we should spray them to keep them <laughs> going well. But that was another story. Uh, we got um, uh, on the same farm, actually, working with potatoes. Uh, we got a, a yield increase from 21 tonnes per acre to 26 and a half tons, I think it was almost a thirty percent yield increase. Which think, which translates into real money for a farmer, doesn't it? Oh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yes. Um no, similarly, um up to thirty percent yield increases in wheat, uh twenty five percent yield increase on that farm, thirty percent increase in Australia. was that just through working with the seeds or was there something else done on that farm? So, um, um, I think probably an illustrative story, um, we're, we're in New South Wales on about 5,000 acres, uh, that was heavily traumatized, um, during, uh, colonial Aboriginal displacement, replacement and um, was described to me as a Rolls-Royce property without spark plugs. And they were grazing it and farming it regeneratively. They were using biodynamics and radionics, um, but they just couldn't get it to lift and do what it should have done looking at the tin. And um, the thing was absolutely saturated with this massacre and displacement and ghosts and curses and residues of all manner, like a sort of heavy mist looked through psychic eyes. Um, so job on the day was to clear that and then let the landscape know that now, you know, it was under the management uh, paradigm that it was. And it wasn't hunting, gathering permaculture anymore, but... Um, uh, grass and cows and sheep and, and, uh, monocultured crops. So then two weeks after my visit, they planted a crop of sorghum and, um, their previous average had been one ton per acre. Their previous best was 1.6 tons per acre. This came in at 2.3 tons per acre. Um, and also they were the only one of 10 adjacent farms served by the same agronomist who didn't have to spray for uh, Heliothis grub, which is the pest uh, that predates on uh, sorghum because the crop was so full of spiders and wasps as natural um, predators on this thing. And when they finished combining the combine harvest, it was covered in cobwebs. They'd never seen anything like it. Um, so uh, I think... Uh, several things from that. One is, um, I don't think we, in, we, we didn't increase yield really. What we did was we brought it up to its healthy normal. So previous yields, I think, were low because the landscape energy, life energy was compromised and locked up in this previous stress and not available for the plant. So we brought it to its natural sort of optimum state. 
um, and then in its natural state and knowing what it was and why it was there, it, it brought in all natural biological predators to, to support and enhance the crop. So the yield increase varies depending on how much stress the landscape has been carrying. Some landscapes like that, there's a lot of locked up energy. You free it up and the yield sort of bounces, but then it stabilizes. Other landscapes, um, the yield might may or not be dramatically impacted. It just depends what it's carrying. But germination rates, yield, health of crops, ability as with that one, to um, self-manage in the face of pests and predators, and then storage quality and nutritional quality, uh, we look at in 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 um, in growing crops um, as outcomes. Um, with animals, we're looking at uh, fertility rates, health of animals, weight gain, um, etc. So it's all really dependent upon the health of the land. And the land, it sounds like, it can look healthy, just as those people describe this place in Wales, like a Rolls-Royce property, and yet it's not responding. And, and so that's just so, it's just so amazing because our body is, like, is the land also. And, and, and so, you know, we experience emotional trauma, difficulty, challenge, whatever it is, and our body responds to that and sometimes gets very sick. And it, it's the land is the same. I think that's, that's one of our sort of universal guiding principles, Shana, is um, uh, there's no difference between we're, we're all consciousness complexes, uh, electromagnetic toroidal fields full of resonance. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's no difference between a person and a plant or an animal or a landscape, a planet, a solar system, a galaxy, except for scale, um, both scale in magnitude and scale in time. But uh, we're all self-similar orga or 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 organisms, um, energy fields, and so any awareness or perception or um, skill or ability that we have that works with a person is easily transposable to uh, working with, with plant, animal and place. There's no, there's nothing different to learn in terms of transposing those awarenesses. Uh, just, just the issue of scale because land's got a long memory and, uh, and is larger than we are. So um, it's a little bit different working with landscape than with people because you need to uh, find ways to accommodate that issue, uh, points of leverage, uh, ways to access, um, you know, the heart of the system because um, in its complexity and diversity, it, it, it may be overwhelming to the mind. Um, but certainly, you know, in, in, in essence, People, people in place, just the same, no difference. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fantastic, really, because it's so evident that we could change this planet 
with this depth of understanding. You know, I, I, I've been saying we're in the garden. We're in the garden. We just have some big parasites and ultimately the virus is in the mind. And, and ultimately, if we can heal the mind and the heart, we really can have heaven on earth. I, I, just, I just know this. So we are at the end of the first hour. In the second hour, I want to, there's so much more I want to talk to you about, Patrick. I want to talk to you about pests, both, uh, shall we say, um, insect pests, because again, I'm thinking of all these people who are really being called back to the land now. So many people are growing their own food and they're coming up against issues. And, and then it's like, oh no, what? What do I do? I don't want to put chemicals on this land. And so obviously uh, we will be discussing just how you can address that. And I also want to talk about ghosts and I will share the story of, of uh, how you helped me with my poltergeist earlier this year. <laughs> so, all right. Thank you to the listeners. If you want to uh, listen in on hour two, Come over to themushroomsapprentice.com and subscribe. And we are going to get right into it here in this next hour. <laughs> 